Hi, I'm Allison Kulo. Hi, I'm Roger Goldman. Welcome to Mountain Money. Football is not the only thing that kicks off in the fall. As always, the new Supreme Court term began the first Monday in October. And while developments at the court may not be followed as closely as the Taylor Swift, Travis Kelsey romance, the obvious reality is that the court's decision this term are certain to be far more consequential. Here to help us understand some of the major cases affecting business that the court will decide this term is Professor Scott Ballinger. He's the director of the Appellate Litigation Clinic at UVA, a former clerk to Justice Antonin Scalia, and he's argued three cases before the Supreme Court. We're lucky to once again have him as a guest on Mountain Money. Morning, Scott. Good morning. Thanks for being here. Scott, let's start with the social media cases. As I understand it, the court will hear challenges to statutes passed in Florida and Texas, and also to hear a case from the Fifth Circuit enjoining the government from supposedly coercing social media companies to take down content the government considers misinformation. So let's start with Florida and Texas. What are those cases about? So those cases are challenges to laws that were passed in Texas and Florida, which broadly speaking, try to restrict the ability of social media platforms like Twitter or, um, or X now or Facebook, um, try to restrict the, their ability to moderate user posts. This comes out of mainly conservative frustration with the sense that Facebook and X and Ike were selectively censoring conservative ideas. And the laws try to do several things. They prohibit the platforms from deleting user posts based on the content or the viewpoint of those posts. They required the social media companies to explain why they deleted something and provide certain due process protections like a right of appeal if you get kicked off. And more generally, they required the platforms to disclose the rules and the algorithms that determine which posts get widely disseminated and which don't. Now, the supporters of these laws cast them as striking a blow for the First Amendment rights of social media users not to have their posts censored for political reasons. The companies say that the laws violate the First Amendment rights of the companies themselves by forcing them to disseminate content that they find un that they find objectionable. And this is really an interesting clash of First Amendment values on both sides. I think the right answer comes down to whether you think Facebook and its ilk are more like the phone company, which just serves as a conduit for the speech of others, or are they more like a newspaper, which is making its own editorial decisions? The Supreme Court uh, held a long time ago in a case called Miami Herald versus Tornillo that states can't force newspapers to run op-eds that they don't want to publish. Florida had a right of reply statute that forced newspapers to carry responses from public officials when they were criticized. And the Supreme Court held that that violated the newspaper's right to curate their own op-ed page. I think this is genuinely hard. I mean, on the one hand, the social media companies really do have strong editorial interests here. If people's Facebook feeds get overrun with hate speech or borderline pornography, then people are going to stop using Facebook and they certainly won't let their children sign up. The companies say they have to exercise editorial judgment to put together the sort of community that they are trying to develop. But on the other hand, it's not entirely unreasonable for the people of Texas and Florida to think that Facebook and Twitter are, are more like the modern incarnations of the phone company or a railroad. We don't let the phone company express its own First Amendment interests by deciding what people get to say or not say over the phone. They're public utilities and they have to provide service to everyone on equal terms. And that's a powerful analogy too. 
The, the hard part for me is that we treated the phone company and the railroads as common carriers mm -hmm. that had to serve everybody because it, it wasn't physically realistic to have more than one phone company or more than one railroad. But Facebook can reasonably say, hey, if you don't like our content moderation policies, you've got plenty of other options. And, and in fact, you know, we do see other options popping up. Are there other analogies where the court has applied first, has, has basically applied First Amendment principles to say, to a private company, to say they have to do things? I mean, you mentioned that, that newspaper case. Are there, are there analogies where it went the other way, where the court has said, hey, you know, you have to do this, notwithstanding your, your First Amendment rights to do what you want? <laughs> Not really, no. Right. You know, for, for the most part, the, 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 the First Amendment is, is very strong that compelled speech is just as bad as censorship. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's talk about the other uh, cases, which are these, what, what we call the coercion cases. As I understand it, there was a case that, what, that the Fifth Circuit basically enjoined certain kinds of communications from the, from the White House to the federal government to uh, Facebook and others. How does that, what, what is that statute about? Well, so this comes out of some uh, revelations after Elon Musk took over Twitter. He released a, a bunch of Twitter documents making clear that federal law enforcement has been working very closely with the social media companies, urging them to take down content that the government regards as misinformation, including things like QAnon conspiracy stuff and Soviet propaganda, but also arguably some real journalism about things like the lab leak theory of COVID's origins or Hunter Biden's laptop. Um, the district court in that case uh, actually enjoined the, the government from a, a broad range of contacts with the social media companies. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals cut way back on the district court's injunction and limited it basically to an injunction prohibiting the Biden administration from coercing the social media companies uh, to take down certain content. And the Biden administration it isn't even willing to abide by that. They want the Supreme Court to get rid of even that more limited injunction. That case is waiting in the wings and the court has temporarily stayed the application of that injunction while it waits to decide whether it's taking the case. Okay, so as of now, they haven't actually taken it. It's just been stayed. It seems fairly inevitable, but it's just been stayed. So, you know, Roger and you, you know, are discussing the implications of these legal matters. Myself, not having a depth in legal background, you know, just start to think about, you know, these first two pieces of, you know, one, people can't be deleted because of their political statements, but two, we still have to moderate, you know, in order for this to be a platform that people want to use, that people trust. Um, but it feels like the amount and the list of everything in the fine line that they need to walk on all aspects is just enormous. Um, and then if I think about Europe and some of the things that, you know, either Facebook or X is facing as far as regulations there, you know, does it make sense for a company like this to turn on and off certain services based on where they're located? That's a really good point. The, the social media companies are in a very difficult position here because they'll, sort of, they'll be blamed no matter what, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, anytime things uh, are on there that people think shouldn't be there, uh, they get blamed. There's a, a very good chance that if the United States decided to treat the social media companies as sort of more like a public park or more like the phone company and, and require them to run everything that users want to post, that, you know, countries elsewhere in the world 
are going to decide the exact opposite. They're, they're very, very worried about misinformation and hate speech in, in Europe and are constantly threatening these companies with action if they, if they don't moderate content. So they're really between a rock and a hard place. Interesting. Okay. The court will also hear a very significant Second Amendment case, United States versus Rahimi. Can you share a bit about the background in that case? Sure. There are actually two here. The Rahimi case is in some ways a stalking horse for an even more important case waiting in the wings called Range versus Attorney General. Um, and the pair of them could be hugely important. So it, I hope uh, everyone remembers District of Columbia versus Heller from 2008, which held for the first time that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to possess firearms. In that case, which was written by Justice Scalia, the court was careful to say that they were talking only about law-abiding responsible persons and didn't mean to call into question traditional restrictions on the possession of guns by felons and the mentally ill or in particularly safe places like schools or courthouses. A couple of years ago, in a case called New York Rifle and Pistol Club versus Bruin, the court extended the right to bear arms to outside of the home as well and held that the primary guidepost for any limitations has to be history and tradition. If the government can't come up with a pretty tight historical analogy for a particular firearms regulation it wants to enforce, the holding of the Bruin case is that the Second Amendment prohibits that regulation. So the Rahimi case is, is about a criminal statute, 18 U.S.C. 922 G8, which forbids possession of firearms by persons who are subject to civil protective orders. So think like a domestic violence restraining order. The Fifth Circuit held that there's no historical precedent for taking guns away from people who are subject to that sort of civil protective order. So 922 G8 is unconstitutional. In the 18th and 19th century, law would take your guns away only after you had actually been convicted of a crime beyond a reasonable doubt. And by contrast, judges will frequently enter these sort of protective orders on very little factual showing at all, often just for the asking and in the absence of any you know, actual history of violence. So, for example, in California and some other states, in divorce proceedings, judges will often enter a restraining order against both parties, just ordering both of them to stay away from each other. That may seem like a harmless thing for the judge to do, but the consequence under 922 G8 is to turn both of them into felons if they own a gun. And as Ho pointed out in a concurrence in the Fifth Circuit, it could effectively disarm a woman who is genuinely threatened with violence and may actually need a gun to defend herself. So it, it sort of looks like 922 G8 is a well-intentioned law that in practice disarms a lot of people who may not be dangerous at all. The, the other case is Range versus Attorney General, where the Third Circuit held this summer that 18 U.S.C. 922 G1 violates the Second Amendment, at least as applied to the defendant in that case. 922 G1 is the general felon in possession statute, the one that bans possession of a firearm by anyone who has been convicted of a felony. Mr. Range is an extremely sympathetic litigant. He, he had pled guilty to one count of making false statements about his income in order to get food stamps to help feed his children. Mr. Range pled guilty, paid back the money, served three years probation, and, and the only other criminal history he has is basically traffic offenses and one count of fishing without a license. The, the Third Circuit held that there's no real historical support for taking guns away from uh, a nonviolent offender like Mr. Range, even if his crime was technically a felony. But this is a really big deal. 922 G1 is one of the most frequently prosecuted federal crimes. 
So if the Third Circuit's decision stands, it could potentially mean that thousands of federal criminal sentences will have to be vacated, and it would restore firearms rights to a whole lot of, of nonviolent offenders. Scott, talk a little bit about this notion that the Second Amendment has to be interpreted through 19th century glasses. Are, are there other similar kinds of interpretations to, co- to provisions of the Constitution that we've seen enforced before, or is this really kind of a one-off? Well, it, it represents, you know, maybe the first and um, most dramatic triumph of the Supreme Court's new, much more originalist majority. Um, but there are other areas where the court has insisted on history in, in what we call substantive due process or the, the privacy cases. Um, the court has uh, begun saying that there are no constitutional rights other than the ones that were protected uh, you know, historically in the 18th, 19th century. And, and that's where the Dobbs decision uh, overruling Roe versus Wade came from mm-hmm. last year. There, the, the difference with the Second Amendment is that the court seems to be requiring a lot of specificity. Um, And so, you know, always in constitutional law, you you can always draw analogies to history, but the question is how tight do those analogies have to be? And in the Second Amendment context, one reading of the Bruin case is that you can't regulate firearms unless you can point to an analogy that is really, really tight. Um, you You could think about it much more broadly, right? And I imagine that some of the justices will want to say, well, look, there are 18th and 19th century examples of the, the government taking away guns from people who were perceived to be dangerous. And therefore, we ought to be able to per- take away guns from people who are perceived to be dangerous today, even if you know, the specific grounds on which we perceive them to be dangerous are a little bit different than it's something that was identified in 1789. And, and that's right where my question was going. I mean, new things are invented. You know, there's got to be a new situation that comes up that, you know, has to, in, in my mind, you know, like this historical interpretation, it feels so narrow that it doesn't allow room for innovation and changes within our culture. Well, I think that's right. So at, at, at one point, you know, 20 years ago, I represented a class of terminally ill cancer patients in a case against the FDA, uh, arguing that there is a right to defend yourself by taking uh, unapproved but investigational medicines that are currently in phase two clinical trials. And the the D.C. Circuit's response uh, in large part was, well, we we can't find any example of a protected right to take investigational drugs that are in phase two clinical trials in 1789. (laughs) And, you know, uh, our counter argument was, well, of course, the context was different back then. But the the founders back then recognized a a very strong right to self-defense. And that analogy should hold today. The, The question in the Second Amendment cases is how much reasoning by analogy will be accepted. And given that we have sort of six justices who are somewhat inclined toward originalism, what did you what do you expect would happen? Well, I, if, if I knew, I'd, uh, I'd be placing bets. You, you know, I, I think there are some um, very dedicated Second Amendment originalists on the court. You know, most notably, probably Justice Thomas. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, some other members of the conservative majority have more of a law and order bent and are are more likely, I think, to uh, accept some reasoning by analogy in this context, maybe the Chief Justice, maybe Justice Kavanaugh. Um, you know, it, it, as I mentioned at the top, Justice Scalia wrote the, the opinion in the Heller case, 
which said that the court didn't mean to be calling into question traditional bans on the possession of, of firearms by felons and the mentally ill. Um, and so, you know, that is a respectable conservative position, and, and I expect it will get some votes. There's a number of cases that address the limits of what has been called the administrative state. Can you explain a bit about the Chevron doctrine and the significance of the Fisherman case? Uh, sure. Well, the, the Fisherman case um, is a, about a, a doctrine of interpretation called the Chevron doctrine, which uh, is a rule that, again, Justice Scalia actually championed. Um, and it basically holds that judges should defer to an agency's own interpretation of the statutes that the agency administers. So in the Fisherman case, the question is whether the 1976 Magnuson-Stevens Act, which gives the National Marine Fisheries Service, gives the Fisheries Service authority to make fishermen pay for the observers that have to come along in their boats to make sure that they don't break federal fisheries law. The, the Magnuson-Stevens Act gives the Fisheries Service the authority to impose necessary and appropriate regulation to prevent overfishing. Does that include the right to make the fishermen pay for the observers that are watching them? Well, the statute doesn't really say either way. There are decent arguments on both sides. The question is whether the courts should defer to the Fisheries Service understanding of the law that it was charged with administering, or instead try to figure out themselves what the best answer is. That the law for a long time has been that you defer to the agency. It's become clear in recent opinions that there are at least four votes on the current Supreme Court to cut back on the idea of deferring to agency interpretations of federal law. So litigants who don't like agency action have been highly motivated to try and get these cases in front of the Supreme Court. A few of the conservative justices seem to think that deference to agencies is actually unconstitutional, that it's an abdication of the judicial's uh, the judicial branch's obligation to interpret the law. Uh, some of the others, like Justice Kavanaugh, maybe just want to say that deference is okay only when a court really can't figure out what the right answer is. Um, this one will probably come down to the Chief Ju Justice and Justice Barrett, whose views are, are less clear. And, and why is there, what, what is the motivation behind this sort of antipathy, if you will, to administrative decision making? Well, I, I think the regulated industries have never been uh, consistently big fans of the agencies whose job is to regulate them. And, and they're sort of even more so when you have a Supreme Court that is perceived to be um, very conservative and relatively anti-regulation, you know, of course, you would want to shift decision-making power away from the agencies and onto judges. That's, uh, you know understandable and you know scott in some circumstances we have seen sort of for lack of a better term manufactured efforts to get cases in front of the court that would allow uh, a, an agenda to be advanced are, are some of these administrative cases they fall into that category or are these sort of na what natural or what a, for lack of a better term organic appeals uh, i mean you know goodness as someone who cares about constitutional law i actually personally concerned about the flood of manufactured uh, sort of fake litigation. Um, but, it, you know, I, I think it, it's some of both. There certainly are a, a lot of these cases that are being presented to the court now because industry or particular litigants smell success, right? Um, you know, you have also on the court's docket this year a challenge to the budget of the Consumer Finance Protection Board. So the 
The CFPB uh, organic law has a rather unusual provision that, that sets the budget for the CFPB by giving the director of that agency uh, discretion to ask the Federal Reserve for how much money the agency needs. And there's a challenge on the court's docket to whether that violates Congress's right to appropriate specific amounts of money for the executive branch. You know, it, it, is that really about the abstract question of constitutional principle um, of, you know, Congress's appropriations power? You know, I, I doubt it. What it's really about is that if that funding mechanism is unconstitutional, Congress would have to come up with another one. Mm -hmm. And we all know that Congress is completely incapable of doing anything at all these days. Um, and so if, you know, this challenge to the CFPB's PB's funding mechanism succeeded, it might be a way to kill the CFPB entirely, at least on a temporary uh, basis. But, you know, the, these efforts, you know, they don't always work, right? I mean, so actually an argument the other day, the justices seem to be pretty favorable to the CFPB's position. Even Justice Thomas seemed to be saying argument that just because this is a novel way of funding an agency doesn't necessarily make it unconstitutional. So I think people sometimes think that the Supreme Court is going to be more consistently or predictably anti-regulatory than it actually is. And Justice Thomas actually spoke a little bit, I take it. Yes, he is uh, asking a lot of questions these days. Scott, before we go, on the program, we've, we've had a couple of books that dealt with the uh, Purdue uh, and, and the Sackler family. And I understand that the Purdue bankruptcy plan, which had a relatively broad discharge, is uh, being challenged by the, it was initially challenged by the U.S. bankruptcy discharge and excuse, U.S. bankruptcy trustee. Uh, what's the basis of that challenge before the court? And what are the implications of this case? Well, so the Sackler family controls Purdue Pharma, which makes OxyContin. And, you know, as I think you all know, when it became clear that Purdue was going to be uh, eventually overwhelmed with the tsunami of litigation about their role uh, in causing the opioid crisis, the Sackler family withdrew about $11 billion from the company and moved it overseas. The, the company, Purdue Pharma, has now filed for bankruptcy, and it wants the courts to approve a reorganization plan that would more or less give all of its assets to the opioid lawsuit plaintiffs. The Sacklers have agreed from overseas to give back about $6 billion of the $11 billion that they, that they withdrew toward that fund for the, the opioid claimants, but only if the reorganization plan in the bankruptcy eliminates their personal liability to all of those plaintiffs rather than just the company's liability. And the technical question before the Supreme Court is whether the bankruptcy code lets a court do that, you know, whether you can release the debts of someone who has not declared bankruptcy. And under the bankruptcy code, again, there are good legal arguments both ways, as there almost always are in Supreme Court cases. You know, the bigger question is when, if ever, the law should be willing to reward bad actors in order to get a good deal done. The bankruptcy court apparently has no way to get back that $11 billion that the Sackler family has, um, and they're not going to give it any of it back without assurances that doing so will buy peace. So most of the creditors want to strike this deal. But there's a question of whether the bankruptcy code allows the, the trustee to strike a sort of practical deal that will leave the Sackler family uh, with some of this money. <clears throat> Scott, we, we, we've enjoyed our conversation. Uh, hopefully we'll touch base with you at the end of the term about what the most significant decisions were. Happy to do it.
Last Thursday, approximately 1,200 people gathered at the Grand America Hotel in Salt Lake City for the unveiling of Utah's 100, Mountain West Capital Network's annual list of the fastest growing companies in the state. Joining, on the, joining us this morning to talk about the event and the list of 100 Utah companies is Jason Roberts and Ryan Dent with Mountain West Capital Network. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you. Good morning. Last Thursday's event was a celebration. Can you begin with outlining the process these companies go through to be considered for the Utah 100? You bet. This is Ryan. Um, it really starts with the applications, uh, as well as pulling public information for public companies. Then a significant effort goes into validating the revenue and the data that we receive provided on the applications. Uh, and then we review the supporting information that we get from the companies on that to kind of finalize the data and then do the rankings. Once this data has been data or validated and cleansed, then we put the rankings together and get ready for the big celebration. We, we do believe this extra effort kind of sets us apart from a lot of the lists in the marketplace. And why is it important to have a list, Ryan, of, of the 100 fastest growing companies in Utah? Well, there's so many great things that are happening in the state. One of the goals of the Mountain West is to really spotlight the success in the business community. So that's where we focus. We think that celebration inspires, it motivates, and hopefully it seeds Jason. entrepreneurs. Okay, um, Jason, the selection committee spends a bit more time analyzing the emerging elite. Can you talk about why the review is a bit more focused and, of course, what are what is or are the emerging elite? Yes, thank you. Uh, you know, first of all, the the emerging elite companies have been in operation less than five years. So, you know, the focus um, you know needs to be not just on revenue growth, but also understanding you know the story, how they've uh, the companies have overcome challenges of growth. Um, you know, to really sit down and meet the team and understand their backgrounds and. And, um, you know, operations, uh, you know, how the projections against budget is, is going, um, you know, there's discussion on investors and, and the support, uh, as well as obviously the projections on product and solutions. So there, yeah, there definitely is a more time spent, but I think, um, you know, as we've uh, seen a lot of these emerging elites have, uh, then become, you know, the, the top companies in Utah. And I want to go right to that, Jason. The, fo the focus spent last year on the emerging elite paid off because this year's 100 winner, the fastest growing company in Utah, was also listed as an emerging elite. So can you highlight this year's winner and what they do? Yeah, thank you. Azova, so they implemented a fully connected digital health technology platform. So basically what that means is it, it's focused on the, on the patient uh, so uh, giving uh, you and I an opportunity to quickly and efficiently uh, evaluate, you know, health providers, evaluate, um, you know, th information on on ways we can connect really quickly. Um, th their story is is very inspiring. Um, you know, they identified an opportunity uh, years ago within the healthcare system, uh, and you know, really build a solution. I mean, these are. A solution for not only patients but also health care providers, uh, wellness providers, payers, uh, pharmacy management systems. Uh, and they really have identified something and created that 
platform to really address all of the needs within the industry. And another market disruptor appears to be bacon work, um, which sounds like a sizzling hot company. Uh, Jason, can you give us a little bit about talking about how this company is changing hourly shift work? Yeah. Yeah. So they're all about making uh, temporary work professional and reliable. So, you know, they are not only connecting um, businesses and giving businesses a solution to find temp workers, um, but also allowing, you know, similar to Uber and others, you know, rate, uh, you know, giving a rating to uh, those um, those workers and, and allowing the the businesses to thrive with really highly um, you know highly valued uh, workers and you know the businesses are able to set their own hourly wages choose their workers and it really is um, driving efficiency within that process. Ryan, I want to talk with you about San Diablo Artisan Churros. They're a worldwide churro provider and was listed within Utah's 100. It appears that churros are very popular in order to be able to make this designation. You know, we were talking about kind of marketplace disruptors with healthcare, with kind of shift work. How hard is it for a company that has a singular focus to make this list? I would say it's really hard. Um, you know, when you look at a company like San Diablo Churros, they have seen some great success. You know, as they continue their journey, It'll be fun to watch them. And, and the natural next step for a lot of these companies is to diversify their product line. So, you know, not to speak for the company, but that is likely a next step we see in companies like this. But we're excited that they can make the list. And it is a huge accomplishment for a company like this to be ranked. I had the uh, the opportunity last week to actually come to the award ceremony down at the Grand America Hotel. And you've got, you know, 1,200 people in the room, and this is your 29th annual event. The conversation I had with a table mate was that, you know, she remarked how impressed she was that a majority of the people at this event were the companies nominated and their employees. How, um, what I found, you know, just really great was, you know, what you guys were able to build. What does it mean to you as producers of the event to know that this is a celebration for many companies in a way they honor their employees? Yeah, it's a, definitely a celebration for all. You know, we at the Mountain West Cabinet Network really love to highlight the accomplishments of Utah. Uh, the best companies across all stages of their growth, Looks like, Jason, can you fill in Ryan's connection? Looks like, looks like we lost a bit. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think um, what Ryan was alluding to is just, you know, th this is an opportunity really to focus on companies and, and what, um, you know, especially in this environment where I think it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of challenges and not only, um, you know, politically, but there's, there's a lot that's, that, that's going on. And I think it's, it's great to be able to witness the successes that have happened within this this state, and um, you know there are many incredible stories, and I think this allows those stories to be heard, and also opportunities for us to to have some optimism in um, in the future. I, I think there's a lot of huge upside in um, where we're going as a state. And, um, you know, there, there are, as I mentioned, several stories. I mean, you know, you mentioned the churros. I was just going to add that 
here's a, a dessert platform, right? I mean, they, they sell churros and, and they're good. Don't, don't get me wrong, <laughs> but the customer experience on the website is incredible and it's easy. Um, you know, you can set up a food truck, you can set up catering. I mean, there's so many things that they've done very well. And, and again, they sell one product. And, um, you know, I think there's many stories like that of entrepreneurs that have really taken something and really done some incredible things. You know, Allison's stories about the, the banquet sort of suggest to me that there's a really spirit of enthusiasm that you see at this at this function my understanding is there's even a spirit award for the table that is the most enthusiastic when their name is called uh, mit 45 won the award this year why is that spirit award so important and is it true that someone actually wore a chewbacca costume last year in hopes of winning uh yes yes someone did uh wear a chewbacca costume and and i think the spirit award has been something that's been a staple for this uh for this uh uh, event for many years. Um, I think uh, people come ready to, to cheer, ready to yell and scream, and uh, obviously ready to celebrate. And Mid Forty Five did a did a really good job of of being loud and um, being supportive of what they've accomplished, as well as many others. It's it's a hard one to to select a, a winner, honestly, because you, you have so much that that's happening, but. Um, really proud of of uh the companies over the years and and they're you know just they're celebrating and and the way that they celebrate i mean the chewbacca was was definitely a classic <laughs> you know that was the other thing that i noticed when going to the event is just one you, it's an event for a significant number of people and yes the event maybe is only two and a half hours maximum but the amount of people that it took to put this together can you talk about again mountain west capital network who are they and who you know who are these people that volunteer for this organization and why do they do it yeah no i think sometimes i i wonder why i do it too i especially being on the stage but um i would say you know these are you know, leaders throughout the community that work for a number of businesses that have been in business for, you know, years. Um, these are individuals that, you know, I think have a sense of, uh, you know, giving back and, and being um, involved in the community and, and, and also developing relationships. I think that these, uh, these committees that, you know, the Utah 100 committee, we meet monthly. We have conversations on a, on a sometimes daily basis. Um, there is so much work um, that that's happening. Uh, you know, Sherry Waldron, executive director of the Mountain West, uh, is full time, and we've uh, been blessed to have her leadership through the years. Um, and then others that have just, you know, even you know, with full time jobs, um, are willing to give and willing to celebrate. You know, the successes of this of this great state. We've had the opportunity to speak with uh, Jason Roberts and Ryan Dent with Mountain West Capital Networks. Gentlemen, thank you for all the time you put together for this event. You're welcome. Thank you for your thank time. You. Liberty Sanctuary is a volunteer-based equine nonprofit organization located on 80 Acre Ranch in Heber City, Utah, adjacent to Park City. Our, their mission is not only to rescue and re rehabilitate horses and donkeys from the slaughter pipeline, but to share their stories and create awareness for the plight and inhumane circumstances by helping to pass 
the Save, America, Save America's Forgotten Equine Act, or the SAFE Act. Joining us this morning to talk more about Liberty Sanctuary is Deborah West, founder and director of marketing and communications for Liberty Sanctuary. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. You've undertaken a large task and mission with Liberty Sanctuary. Can you talk about what Liberty Sanctuary is and how it began? Yeah, absolutely. So unfortunately, as a country, we've really betrayed the American equine and thousands, we learned thousands of healthy young American horses are sent to slaughter every year outside our country. And when I learned about this in detail, and I've been an equestrian for a long time, many equestrians that we've come across are also just kind of opening their eyes to this, um, we decided we needed to do something. Um, so we had land in Heber and um, it just the, the mission just viscerally struck me and we started rescuing equines starting um, in the end of April, actually just this year. Um, from Bowie, Texas, was our our first uh, our first ten horses, um, nine horses and a mini donkey came from Bowie, Texas, and the, those horses, those animals would have been dead by now. They would have been dead in April, and so that's really the genesis of how things started. Um, and we we wanted to bring them here, make um, the public familiar with the issue, make our lawmakers familiar with the issue, so hopefully they can help us to do more and to pass the Safe Act. Now, why would these horses and the donkey be in, in a pipeline that would lead them to being slaughtered? You know, it's a variety of issues, but, you know, this is a money show. So um, really the very, the very top issue is financial. This is a market, and it's actually become an artificial market because um, the, the animals that are surrendered have homes they could go to. But they're they're sent into the slaughter pipeline because they feel like that's the only option for them and that's not an option there are also some horse owners who bring their horses to auction thinking that they they'll have a payday but they don't realize that they're they're jeopardizing that animal's life because in that auction there's also a kill buyer and the kill buyer will purchase the animal horse or donkey and if the price is right, which happens sometimes, the end of a night, the end of an auction, not every horse, you know, sells for $20,000. And when a horse does kind of fall below that threshold or doesn't get sold, that horse is, is in jeopardy and vulnerable to enter the slaughter pipeline. So there's a value to the horse. It's, you mentioned a concept of a kill buyer, which sounds like a rather sinister term. Um, a kill buyer is someone who perceives a value of the horse for the purpose of killing it? Yes, absolutely. So um, the wholesale price for horse meat is between um, 63 cents a pound and uh, $2.22 a pound right now in, in 2023. And, and again, I'm, I'm aware enough of, you know, taking care of equine animals that it, they're not inexpensive to care for either. They're not. So what does a, what is a common cost to take care of a, a healthy animal? Uh, yeah. Well, we put for the sanctuary, you mean? Yeah. yeah. So we, we put a value right now, like it, it's probably about $800 a horse a month. Okay. But this is just work we have to do. The American equine has been our partner in developing the country and in work and play and it's it's just not right for us 
as a country, it's not moral to abandon them at this stage. And we have, just to give you an idea, we, we mostly focus on rescuing younger horses. The youngest horse that came to us was one month old. He was born in the, in the kill pen. And people just don't understand that. And, and so, you know, it's why we're here. We actually had um, a meeting on Friday. Uh, John Cor Congressman John Curtis sent a representative, Larry Ellison, and um, he wanted to learn more about this issue and to have the animals here on property and see the progress that they're making. These are valuable equines. They need work. They need attention. They should have had the foundation put in them in the first place. And we're here to do this. And other sanctuaries all over the country who we are, uh, who we coordinate with, are here to do are, to do that as well. So there are resources. That's interesting. Are there a network of similar sanctuaries around the country? There are. And we're also working on something called the Equine Assistance Network that would help connect the dots for people so that if you are a horse owner in need and maybe you lost your job, because this is what happens, again, yeah. back to economics, you know, horses aren't inexpensive for anyone to care for um, but you make that commitment to this animal and so it, we, we're trying to create um, um, more of a clear network so that the horse owner if they lose their job maybe they could go maybe three months of hay would help them be able to hold on to their horse or um, you know maybe a sanctuary like like ours could you know help out at, from time to time but people don't really understand where the resources are and I've learned that sort of coming into the issue newer you know looking at it from the other side looking at it from both sides because there's definitely a need and everyone we talk to across the country um, acknowledges that. And, and just, you know, talking about, you know, <clears throat> caring for animals and inflation, it, I had recently heard a report about just, you know, uh, dogs and cats and, and the um, increase in people turning them over for adoption because inflation has increased costs. And I yeah. could only imagine that with the care for equines being so much more, yeah. um, that that's the same that's being faced in that It's area. a challenge, and especially in the West where hay is a lot more expensive than it is on the East Coast. So it's like double the price hmm. here. Really? Yeah. And is that... Just cause? Um, yeah, it has to do with the land, the water. You yeah. know, water in the West is always a challenge. And so, you know, that's, you know, growing anything, it just winds up being a little bit more challenging here. So, yeah. Now, you're a relatively new operation. Um, how long did it take you and why did you decide to become a 501c3? Um, so, we started, we launched, um, we, we hired help <laughs> to become a 501c3 back in November. And um, we did get our um, 501c3 status finally in the spring. Um, it has helped quite a bit um, as far as fundraising, um, attracting sponsors. Like we have great sponsors here in Park City, J.W. Bennett and Russian River Vineyards, for example, are some standing sponsors. Um, and and also even getting um, the attention of, of volunteers, you know, it just creates a, a legitimacy. Um, and then just helping to get the word out, you know. And, and you had mentioned that you actually did um, hire to be able to receive assistance to figure this out. How difficult was it to get the 501c3 and what pieces, you know, did you, were you not aware of that maybe took a little more time? Yeah, um, the process wasn't very difficult um, because I, I acknowledge that it was probably better to hire a professional. I think it would have been more challenging if I did it myself, but um, it, we, we needed three board members and clear mission and 
Um, we left the rest of the professionals. <laughs> now you mentioned that the charitable uh, status has facilitated fundraising. Talk to us a little bit about how you go about fundraising and what kinds of activities you've undertaken and what you plan in the future. Absolutely. So we did uh, we did do an in-person fundraiser in the summer in July, and that was great. Um, well attended. It was our first one, so we didn't really know what to expect. Um, we're already planning our second one. And... Um, we also do a lot of fundraising and create a lot of awareness online. So we, we have a website, libertysanctuary.org, and we're on Facebook and also on Instagram and a few others. And um, so we also do promote um, different fundraising around, like we, we recently rescued 12 um, baby horses from um, a Wyoming roundup. Uh, just when I thought we were done for the season, this this horrible thousands of horses were were rounded up in in Wyoming, and so we took um, twelve babies under the age of one, basically that were separated from their moms. Their moms were sent to slaughter in Mexico the day prior to them coming to us. Okay, so the, the, you, you got to help us understand the story. When you tell that, I, I have visions of of Yellowstone. Um, tell me, how was were these wild horses? I mean, they, what, what's the story here? They're wild. They're kind of feral horses. They're not mustangs, um, but they're not mu proper mustangs. But they're they're wild horses on from the Wind River Reservation in Wyoming. Um, they used um, public funds to actually hundreds of thousands of dollars to round them up, um, and. You know, we, we, us and other sanctuaries all over the country um, just had to help. Um, so we picked them up out of a kill pen in Colorado. And we know from that kill pen that um, their moms were, were there just up until they were all sent off. And we, we have extremely amazing care. Eric Kraut is our director of wellness, and he exclusively has been handling them. Sadly, they came sick, and we lost one. Uh, one passed away. But the rest of them now are thriving and have gotten over the, the illness that they contracted there. And, and what will their lives be like at the sanctuary? Um, we have one, ba that baby that came a month old. I mean, he is a living example of success. He, and this is, this is the path for these babies as well. Um, they will be trained. Um, Eric Kraut um, initially works with them when they're tiny, when they're babies, and then we move them on to Trevor Howard, who is basically the best trainer and horseman in the West, not just here in town. Um, and so he works with us um, and has just an incredible innate ability to understand these, these animals and get them on the right path. And they will be adopted out That's and they it. will be, sorry, <laughs> and they will, they will, people will love them. They're, they're wonderful, wonderful babes. So they're not necessarily spending the rest of their lives at the, the sanctuary. Our, our goal is to get them into um, homes where they could have fulfilling, wonderful lives, which they all deserve and ought to have. They just need this, the foundation we can give them. So that's interesting. I take it then that the sanctuary has what I would call multiple paths. I mean, for some of these animals, they're probably at the end of their lives. And do you expect those animals to stay there for the rest of their lives? Yeah, the oldest animal we have on property is probably about 11 years old, and a horse could live till 30, let's oh. say. So, um, but truly, we, we prefer to um, bring in the younger horses to be able to give them a whole brand new life, basically. So, we have a few Mustangs, pretty much, that will, are there in sanctuary. But, uh, but other than that, it's interesting. So, it's a, it's a path to take them out of the kill, kill sanctuary, or the kill pipeline, if you will, and provide them with an alternative way to become 
viably adopted. Absolutely. We want to save their lives and give them new, like, new fulfilling lives. That's a that's a, such a great thing. One of the things I just wanted to talk about you talk with you about is, you know, some of your efforts with regarding to passing the Safe Act. How does you know that affect your fundraising when you're working locally, as well as you know, as you said, like Wyoming, Colorado, and then you've got a national effort as well. I mean, I think it just amplifies things because I mean, we we are working with on a coordinated basis. I'm on a biweekly. Um, national um, horse slaughter call like that works to, with uh, animal wellness action um, in Washington to to really help pass and strategize to pass the safe act um, but this is this is something that needs to get passed it needs to be added to the 2023 farm bill which is being voted on soon and um, it will simply add the words, and equine to um, a dog and cat bill. So dogs and cats, which are, um, are aren't exported for slaughter either. So we just want to add and equine to the dogs and cats, and it, it it's something that should have been done already. We need as a country to get behind this, and um, you can email your legislator to share your view. And, and just to be clear, so what it would do is it would ban the export of, of horses for the purpose of slaughter. Absolutely. 100%. Okay. And then let the sanctuaries do the rest. <laughs> we'll take care of those horses. Okay. Can you tell us how people can find out more about Liberty Sanctuary? Yes, yes, yes. Visit us in Heber or come to our website, www.libertysanctuary.org. We are also at Liberty Sanctuary on Facebook and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much. We have been speaking with Liberty Sanctuary and Deborah West. You've been listening to KPCW's Mountain Money. If you like Mountain Money, let us know. Please leave a review.